Welcome to the New Beginnings Community Church Podcast. Here at NBCC, we welcome the imperfect, flawed, and broken, as much as the healing and thriving, because we are all God's children. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. Well, good morning. Uh, wherever you are, I hope you are with your family. I am Pastor Charlie, so get your family around tight. I need you guys just to kind of get ready for what we're going to do today. I'm going to introduce myself in a little bit, but if you could really quick just turn to Revelation chapter 7 and then also put your pinky or something into John 13. But again, I'm Pastor Charlie. Now, when you hear Pastor Charlie, you probably think of a really tall, good-looking man, and, uh, and I'm a really short, balding uh, 34-year-old. So I'm not that Pastor Charlie. I did try to look a little bit like Pastor Jim. So I wore my Pastor Jim shirt today. This is in honor of him. He's probably going to be watching. And uh, I just want to introduce myself really quick. I'm the newest guy. In fact, I am so new, it, but it feels like a long time because when I got here was one week before all the pandemic hit. So I have had one week to kind of see you. If you were there that Sunday, you saw me and my wife get prayed in. And so it feels like forever, but in the end, it's only really only been four months. And so I just want to introduce my family to you really quick, since none of you have really gotten to meet them. So you're going to meet them here on the screen. Uh, This is my wife and me. And these are our two daughters, Soraya and Eliana. My wife is, I'm going to tell you right now, you're going to like my wife way more than you like me because I am kind of a loud mouth. I, uh, I, I put my foot in my mouth all the time. My wife is sweet. She's so kind and she bakes amazing goodies, which is why, which is why I'm a little bit chubby, but it's okay. I'm trying to, I'm trying to get better at that, but she is just so great and is so wonderful. You will love her way more than you'll ever like me. And so that's my wife, Amy. And this is my my oldest daughter is five. Uh, Her name is Soraya. And she is the perfect blend of a tomboy and a girly girl. Like her favorite thing to do is to wrestle with me. And it's just like really fun thing. And so I throw around, uh, you know, I, I, rock bottom, the whole thing. It is, it is awesome. So I love my baby girl, but she also loves, you know, pink and unicorns and rainbows and that whole thing. And then the chunky one that my wife is holding, that is Eliana. Eliana is just the most amazing little chunk ball. She's a little thinner now because she learned to walk. And so kind of, kind of good and bad in that. And so that is my family. They are awesome. Hopefully you get to see them, especially as things start to get uh, going here pretty pretty soon. Hopefully we get to open up and, you know, we all get to hang out and all that kind of stuff. My name is is obviously Pastor Charlie, so it's going to be fun with me and Charlie Headley kind of always turning our heads when someone calls us. But uh, I'm from a little town called the Tascadero. And in the Tascadero, we have one high school, one junior high, um, like six elementary schools. So I went to school with people all the way from like second, third grade, all the way through high school. So we've known each other forever. I don't have like, you know, a lot of great friends from there because high school was, you know, like high school was for a lot of you, not the glory days. And so, but it was a great, a great little place to, to grow up in. It was, it was a town of about, I'd say about 25,000 people, uh, a lot like Norco, but just imagine Norco, but nothing around it. All right. So it's like, that is your town. We had a Kmart. I worked there. It was great. And it was a, it was a really fun time. And there was obviously some moments in my life that were kind of pillars of things. I just remember everything about that day. The first one um, that I know was kind of a turning point, I knew it was kind of a turning point in America was the Columbine High School shooting. I remember like that day, I was in seventh grade. I remember the teachers coming in, they were really worried uh, kind of all day. And I kind of heard something from a friend about something that happened. I just remember that kind of took over, um, like our youth group talked about it. it, was all this other kind of stuff. Obviously, September 11th, I was a sophomore in high school. and uh, and it was kind of like this, this crazy day where I showed up to school, we go to history class, we're watching everything happen on the screen. And it was just this, this 
you know, Memorial Day. And one of the, the, I wouldn't say it's a day, but a timeline that I remember oh so vividly is this little thing called Y2K. Now, some of you are watching and, and you know about Y2K, maybe from your parents or something like that. But that was the year 2000, the year we were going to go from 99 into the new millennium. And there were all these theories. I was in my eighth grade year. I remember, and I went to church, and so I remember everybody kind of freaking out because it was like, oh, the computers are like gonna, they're gonna freeze up and everything's gonna go you know, away and you know, we're gonna go back to the Stone Age. And now a lot of Christian people are talking about you know, Jesus coming back, all right? And so I'm sitting there, I'm in eighth grade, I'm like, I don't wanna tell anyone that I don't want Jesus to come back because I'm like, kind of like, I got a lot more life to live here, God. Like, it'd be kind of nice. Like, if we could just chill out. But I didn't want to say that out loud. So I'd be like, oh, yeah, Jesus coming back. And yay, I'm excited too. And uh, and then they started talking about different things in Revelation. There was one point that always stuck out to me. And it was like that everyone was going to get raptured. And that's what I always thought my whole life. Everyone's going to get raptured. We're going to get a thief in the night, the whole thing. You're going to be there one moment, disappear. And I was like, all right. And then my pastor started talking about Well, there are 144,000 people that are going to be left here to be evangelists. And in my eighth grade mind, I thought this, oh my gosh, they're going to leave me. I know it. I I know 100%. Like that's just my luck that like, I'm going to be like, I got saved. I live for God. It was so good. And then the rapture happens. It's like, yes, me too. Wait, what am I doing? Why am I staying here? What's going on? And then And I was just so nervous about being one of these 144,000 people that was going to have to go through the tribulation with everyone else, but yet I did everything well and I was going to have to evangelize. And I can just imagine like everyone else being all excited, like all the rest of the guys like, yeah, high fives. And I'm just like, like, was there signups? Like, could we, was there like a, like, could I check the box and knock on? Like, what, what was the deal here? How come? And I know that it's from the tribes of Israel, but even in my eighth grade mind. I'm like, maybe my great, great, great grandfather was just like, I always think like the worst case scenario. And so that was always burned in my mind that I was going to be left in this horrible world. That was my eighth grade faith. Now I'm a little older. I'm still probably wouldn't choose to be one of the 144,000, but I, but I see God's heart and what's happening there. And that's where I really want to start today in Revelations chapter seven. You see what happens um, here in Revelation is that God has told this, or John has really kind of revealed the vision that God gave him. And he's done that in the first six chapters and he's kind of gone through all this stuff, but then he, he almost stops right here in this verse. This is going to be in Revelations chapter seven, um, verse one, and he, and he kind of stops And he almost takes you back in time before the tribulation even begins. Because he wants to set something up here in chapter seven. He says this, after this, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent anyone from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he called out in a loud voice of the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put the seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. And then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. And then if you look down, you're going to see 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from that tribe, all the way down. And it's almost as if what John is saying, he goes, all right, like this is all the stuff. Pastor Jim has been talking about all the stuff that's happening. And then he's like, all right, well, hold on. Back at the beginning before anything happened, because it says right there, it says, do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put the seal on. So he's like, okay, before all that happened, 144,000 men from these tribes of Israel had a seal on their foreheads of God. 
And that is a setup to what happens directly next in this chapter in verse nine. You see, after he sees the 144,000, he describes the tribes that he comes from. You'll see maybe in your Bible, in my Bible, it says there's a great multitude. It says, after this, I looked up and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the lamb. And they were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Now I want you just quickly to skip down to verse 13. Because this is not the 144,000. This is a whole different section of people. So one of the elders asked, these in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? And John says, sir, you know. And then the man says back, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. They are, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them in his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb of the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. So these people that he sees unable to count, unable to count, are people that get saved out of the great tribulation. So these are people that were left behind, were not Christians when God came back, were not raptured. And yet a correlation John makes is these 144,000 people in the time that the tribulation is going on have an impact on so many people from every tribe, tongue, and nation that these people get saved out of that tribulation. Now I need you to remember that. I need you to underline that. I need you to remember that because I think what John is doing in this story, because we're gonna be talking about six of the seven trumpets today. I think John is setting up something very, very important that he's trying to relate to the churches that he's writing this letter to. So let's kind of continue on. So now if you want, you can go to verse, uh, chapter eight. We're gonna start in verse six. This is the trumpets. Now let me tell you this. When I envisioned doing my very first sermon at NBCC, let me tell you what I thought of, okay? I thought it was gonna be a regular service, obviously. I thought it was gonna be uh, a packed house because that's how my brain works. Um, I thought it was going to be something that I got to choose. And I thought I was, gonna, I was gonna preach something where I was gonna make a lot of you laugh. Um, I was gonna preach something that was gonna like, you know, really kind of hit you and just like with some grace and some mercy. And it was gonna be this amazing sermon. And then PJ comes up to me and says, Charlie, I'm going on vacation. I say, that's awesome, Pastor Jim, you, you need it. You know, you're working so hard. He goes, can you take a sermon? And what am I gonna say? No, I don't really don't wanna preach out of Revelation. So I say, of course, Pastor Jim, I wanna be, you know, your favorite employee or whatever the case is. And, uh, and he goes, all right, I go, what's, what's the verse? And he goes, the trumpets, the trumpets, the trumpets of judgment. And I thought, what a perfect way for everyone to like really get to know me. Let me just tell you how the world is gonna be awful and all the things that are gonna happen. And let me tell you about natural disasters. That is gonna endear me to so many people that are gonna to want to have me back and wanna go out to lunch with me. It's gonna be great. And so obviously this was a, a really difficult text to kind of work through in myself. But I feel like, like I said, I feel like John is trying to relay something even within these texts. So we're gonna start here in chapter eight, verse, verse six. We're gonna talk about these seven, the six of the seven trumpets because PJ will talk about the seventh trumpet later. So six of the seven, but we're gonna start with the first. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. 
Verse seven, the first angel sounded this trumpet and there came hail and fire mixed with blood. It was, heard down, it was hurled down on the earth. A third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up and all the grass was burned up. Now, when we hear this, we can think a lot. We could think about actual fire and hail coming down like a natural event or like some people think this could be a nuclear bomb and the fallout of that. This could also be a very big volcano and the ash cloud and the storm that kind of comes out of that. We're not for sure. And I don't want to say anything and say, this is what it is. Cause who knows? This is, this is something that's going to happen in the future. But this is what I do know is that fire is used multiple times in scripture as a way for God to cleanse the earth. Fire is a way for God to say, this needs to be cleansed. This needs to be burned up and dried up and we need to start anew, which is the story of Revelation is God creating a new earth and by burning up the, and using judgment on this one. And so that's the first thing that happens. You will also see just as we're going on, you will see that a lot of the judgments, if you wanna do some study, will relate a lot to uh, the judgments that Egypt had in their plagues when Moses was there. So you'll see a correlation if you want between those two judgments. But the first one is this, that hail and fire and brimstone and fire come down and it burns up a third of the year. So my point on there is that a lot of green is gone, all right? You know, when you're driving through and it's just green and it's beautiful and it's just like, you see the trees. I love like when you just kind of go over a hill and it's just green all over, that's all gone. A third of it is all gone. Not only a third of of the, the trees and all the grasses burned up, but then think about the vegetation, think about the, the farms that are burned up, that, that there's now there's a shortage in food supply. There's so many things that happen because of this one instant. And that's just the first trumpet. See, and then verse eight, the second angel sounded his trumpet and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea was turned into blood and a third of the creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. Sounds like, to me, sounds like maybe an asteroid came down. Maybe there's some natural event that's happening where something comes down and creates this, this huge slaughter of sea life. It, it creates ships to be uh, uh, cast and crashed into, into the mainland. And so what I put here, just so you remember, so I have a lot of green is gone for the first trumpet. And then for the second trumpet, we have sunken ships and slaughtered sea life. Sunken ships and slaughtered sea life. And we already see with the first two trumpets that everything is being upturned. We know that tsunamis are coming out of this. We know that people are losing their houses and their land and even their lives out of this, not even accounting all the, all the sea life that is now unable to, to use as a food source. Just another way that this world is, is turning. And then the third angel comes, sounds his trumpet and a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of the water. And that name of the star is Wormwood. Now I need you to underline Wormwood really quick. We're gonna talk about that. A third of the waters turned bitter and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. Now it could be that it's the same asteroid that has now infected the waters. It could be a whole different thing that has now come. But that idea of Wormwood, let me tell you about Wormwood really quick. Wormwood, is a class in the Israelite, it's a class of, of plants that's known for a bitter taste. And not only do, is it a class of plants that are known for a bitter taste, it was used a couple different times uh, from God to say that, that my judgment is like you eating wormwood. It's this bitter, awful taste that none of them like. And it was a symbol to say that my judgment is bitter. And it only comes to the disobedient. So already we see by the third angel that we have bitter wormwood water, judgment water that's coming. 
Now, I know it seems like we're going through the, the, the trumpets really quick, and there's a reason for that, and I'll talk about that at the end. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the, of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. We now see here an astrological event. That when the sun stops burning a third of it, which makes sense because now the moon, because of the sun, is not burning or is only a, uh, has, has been taken away a third, then obviously the moon, which is just the reflection of the sun's light, is obviously now down a third and the stars have now gone. And it is this like the third of light has left. Now this is in, like, remember when I was talking about those plagues? Do you remember one of the plagues from Egypt? If you, if you were like a Sunday school kid like me with a flannel board, the whole thing. You remember that one of the plagues is darkness fell on Egypt. You remember that another one was that their water turned to blood. So you can even see that John is writing in here kind of correlations between those plagues and these trumpets. And this is just another one, that a third of the light has now gone, that now these people already uh, with their greenery gone, already with their sea life gone, already with their water being turned bitter are now without a third of the daylight in their life. And then look what happens in verse 13. And as I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair called out in a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of earth because of the trumpet blast about to be sounded by the other three angels. Now you see here almost like a disconnect between the first four and these next three, but really these next two that I'm gonna talk about. You see, these first four were very kind of natural disasters in a way, right? Like you think about it, like you can, you can see natural disasters that come out of that. Whether you know, that's all kind of ordained by God and God controls that part. But then there's a break and there's an eagle that sounds off a warning. Because what's coming next is not just natural, it is supernatural. So if you look at the fifth angel, sounds his trumpet. This is in, this is in chapter 9, verse 1. The fifth angel sounds his trumpet. And I, saw, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. And that star was given the keys to the shaft of the abyss. Now, when it says this star, it's not just talking about a star like maybe we think, like that would be a, an asteroid or a shooting star, anything. No, this is referring to the fallen morning star. And if you know your scripture enough, you'll know that this is, most theologians would say this is referring to Satan or to Lucifer, the fallen morning star, the fallen angel that had wanted to be, be as, as good as God and then had fallen and this is a person, obviously, because it's given a key. And it's given a key to the abyss. So read on in verse 2. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose it, from it like smoke from a gigantic furnace. And the sun and the sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts come down on the earth and were given power like the scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or any tree, but only those who did not, now listen, who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not allowed to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like the sting of a scorpion when it strikes. During those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. For they will long to die, but death will elude them. Can we just talk about how scary this, this is like my worst fear ever, okay? I'm gonna title this, this, this trumpet as Satan's scorpion locust, all right? And let me just describe for you really quick what these locusts look like. This is in, this is in verse seven. The locusts look like horses prepared for battle. On their heads, they wore something like crowns of gold and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like woman's hair and their teeth were like lion's teeth. 
They had breastplates like breastplates of iron and the sounds of their wings was like thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails with stingers like scorpions and their tails they had the power to torment people for five months. They had as a king over them the angel of the abyss whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek is Apollon, that is destroyer. Now let me tell you, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just let you know right now and, and if you're watching from Santa Maria or from Whittier, You'll know this already. I am a huge, 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 huge scaredy cat. I don't like bugs, all right? I really don't. The bugs, not my thing, okay? I'm a, I, like, like a June bug. I was running away from a June bug just like two nights ago. My wife was also running, but I was running in the opposite direction. And I'm going to be very honest with you. I was hoping it would go for my wife, all right? I'm going to just be, you know, that's... Understand, I ask for forgiveness from the Lord. I really don't care about your judgment on me. It doesn't matter. I'm just not that guy, okay? I don't like bugs. I don't like, I saw my friend Andy Jagerson picked up a snake the other day and I saw it on Facebook. I was, I was seriously, I was like, and his wife, Brooke, was like taking the picture. I was like, I would have been like 16 feet behind Brooke. Like I would have had nothing to do with that snake. And so when we're talking about locusts the size of, hor- of horses with like scorpions, I don't want anything to do with anything that has anything to do with that, all right? And this is just one more thing that John is revealing and, he's, and he keeps on creating this image of this broken, horrible world that now has supernatural demons that are now flying around stinging people. And when they sting people, they don't even die. They just are tortured for five months. No death. They want to die and death is eluding them. The state of the world that John is describing is horrible. It is broken. It is abandoned. And yet there's still one more thing left. And even though this would scare me, these locusts, what happens next, I'm going to be very honest. It's very hard to even imagine. The sixth angel sounds his trumpet and her voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. And it said, the sixth angel who had the trumpet released the four angels who are bound at the great river of Euphrates. And the four angels who had kept ready for this hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. A third of mankind, bam, wiped away from the four angels from the Euphrates, the four from the Euphrates. Now it is not clear in our text or even from John, whether these angels are under God's authority or whether these are fallen angels under Satan's authority. I tend to lead toward the fallen angel part. But what is very clear and what John makes very clear here is that the world he has just described in these condensed amount of about 20 something verses is that the world is a mess. And that not only has natural disaster happened to these people, now supernatural beings have come, have tortured and now have killed a third of them. Now, if I'm in this situation, I don't know what I'm thinking. But what is revealed from John in verse 20 kind of stuns me and stops me and makes me think a little bit. And I hope it does for you because this is what he says. That the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood. Idols that could not see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. 
that everything here that has happened to them does not cause them to turn to God. Now, hold on. We got to kind of stop right here. Because we just read in, in, in chapter 7 that there is a multitude that John can't even count of people that have turned to God. We already know that this has happened. We see like kind of the, we see the beginning of when the 144,000 are sealed. And then we see the very end of the whole story when they can't even count how many people were saved because of these 144,000. But yet when we talk about the judgments that, that John makes it very clear that these trumpets that all sounded, that no one turns to God. In fact, they keep doing what they've been doing. And this is where I think this is where I think John's making a very, very important point. You see, judgments, even righteous judgments, even God-ordained judgments on people, he knows, he knows that that is not what's going to turn people back to him. In fact, we would not probably blame God at this point in, in history in, in, in when, when John's viewing all of this. We probably would not blame God for the judgment he's bringing to the earth. And we'd probably, most of us, especially if we're Christians, are probably thinking, man, I, this looks awful, but I'm not going to be there. And in fact, I'd probably say this, that some of you have an I told you so spirit. I mean, I told you guys you should have come to church that one Sunday. Told you you should listen to that sermon. I told you, I shared it, I texted it to you and you didn't listen and now look what you got. And that's our heart and that's our spirit. But how could that be our heart or spirit if that's not the heart or the spirit of God? Because even though God has the right to judge this world that we're talking about, he sets up 144,000 men to love on the world that he's judging. Do you notice that in all the judgments that we just read and even the ones that we've read before, there's no humans involved in the judgments. The humans do not play a part in any of these things. Our job on this earth isn't to bring that. Our job on this earth is these 144,000 to love people. Now, I got to be very honest. I got to apologize. You see, I, I really do like routine and, and when things get thrown at me, it can throw me off. And I was already nervous about preaching. I just always will get like that. I have, you know, you guys are gonna hear my testimony. I do have, or I have had a spear of speaking, a fear of speaking in front of people. And, and, and so I can kind of really think like, man, is everybody gonna like it? I can go through that whole thing. And so once I kind of felt good and I knew what was gonna happen, then I can kind of settle into that. And then all of a sudden on Monday, I get this text from my friend. And he goes, hey, did you see what the governor said? And I'm like, no. And so I quickly, we just had staff meeting and I quickly get on my phone and I look and I see that like you have to do outdoor service. You can't do any indoor service. And I had just, we had just gone through opening on May 31st and we were doing so well and everything was going so kind of smoothly. And if you've come in the last uh, couple weeks, you know, like we took all the precautions. We had everybody spaced out. And in that moment, I was angry and I verbalized that anger. And I said stuff, I was like, I cannot believe this guy. He doesn't care. He doesn't care about anything. And it really, it really just came from a spot in me that was frustrated with how things were going. 
It's already been somewhat difficult kind of moving in and being a whole new person. I was a youth pastor before, now I'm at a fully different position. And so I'm still learning what all that is. And then my family's all moving to a whole new city. And then all of a sudden there's a pandemic. So I'm already have all this stuff worked up inside of me. And I just verbalized my, my frustration and my anger onto, onto the governor. And I said things. And so I need to apologize because you know what? God convicted me. Because, you know, I, I decided to go on his Instagram. I was trying to figure out like what, uh, maybe it was a timeline, what the deal was. And sometimes he'll put stuff on there as, as like details of what's going to happen. And I just happened and I felt like this impression to click on the comments. I just wanted to click on the comments. I just wanted to see what other people were feeling. And a lot of people were feeling what I was feeling. And they were typing it out. And they were sending it to him. And they were saying things to him in, in Jesus' name about how awful he was, about what a horrible man he was. Started talking about his family. And I felt God tell me in that moment, why would anyone who claims to love me and know me ever speak like that to one of my sons, to one of the people that I created? And it got to me because I realized that my, my job in this world isn't to judge it, no matter what I think of it. That's not my role. And I was getting distracted by the things that weren't lining up the way that I wanted them to line up. And I got distracted by the things that didn't turn out the way I wanted them to turn out. That things weren't going to happen indoors like I would have wanted. That people weren't going to be in the audience today like I would have wanted. That even though we're doing an outdoor service and you're probably watching this online and probably either right now, we're either just about to get started or just finished with an outdoor service, that that wasn't my plan. But that's not my call. And I think some of us, maybe you, maybe not you, I don't know. But I think some of us are getting distracted. And so I want to tell you this. Don't let your judgment distract you from your calling. If you're a Christian and you're watching, you have a calling on this world. And as horrible and as broken and as beat up as it is right now, our job isn't to throw judgment on it. Our job is to love it. And why do I say that? How do I know that? Well, remember I told you to keep your pinky at John 13, right? So I'm going to have you turn there really quick. You see, the same man that wrote Revelation also wrote the gospel of John. It's the same John. And he's the beloved son. In fact, in, in, he calls himself John the beloved, like the beloved one of Jesus. And in John's mind, and, and he's definitely within a very core group of Jesus, one of three guys. And in John's mind, this is that he is Jesus' best friend. And he pens these words down of his best friend in Jesus' last time that he's going to be with his disciples in a peaceful manner before he dies. So they're up. Remember, if you're, if you're a Christian and you're a Sunday school Christian, you'll know this is like the Last Supper. You know, you, maybe you've seen the picture, all that kind of stuff. It's the last time he's with his friends. And he's there, and, and I, I'm not going to say that I know what this feeling is like, but I have an inkling a little bit because when I was in Santa Maria just a couple months ago, I had my last sermon. And I remember thinking, like, what do I want my students, what do I want my friends to remember? What do I want them to know? 
What's like the one thing I want to leave them with? What's like the one thing that needs to happen? And this is where Jesus is at this moment. He's probably thinking, what's the thing that I need them to get across? And he says these words. This is John 13. We're going to start in verse 33. It says, my children, I'll be with you only a little longer and you will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. So this is my new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Listen, man, I, I know this world is frustrating. I get it. You know, I was talking to, to, my, to my friend and uh, he was just like, Charlie, I'm so angry. I'm just angry at what's going on. I'm angry because the world that I got to grow up in is not going to be the same world that my kids and my grandkids get to grow up in. Like this world is going to be so confusing for them, so much more confusing than when I was a kid. And, and it just makes me angry that they won't get to know the things that, that I knew just that were just so obvious. And I started to think, I was like, man, he's right. Like my girls are so little and, you know, so many things have changed so quickly already. What's going to change in the next, you know, 20, 30, 40 years? But then I started to think, and this is, what I, this is what I feel God has kind of impressed me when I was thinking about this. That there was a moment that you lived in this world before Christ. And when you met him, it changed your world. It didn't change the world outside, but it changed your world. And I know that there are some of you that just want to so bad give your kids a great outside world. You're like, I just want things to be great for them. I want them to have it easy. I want them to be able to go to church and, and, and it just be something that they're so inerrant and like there's no restrictions on how many people can get there. I get that. But to be honest, to fix this world is not the greatest gift you could give them. The greatest gift you could give them is to show them how to love a broken world. That's the greatest gift. Because let's be honest, that's the gift that you have. That we can try our best to fix what's going on around us. To fix it all, to make it all a certain way that we like, that's comfortable. But that's not the greatest gift we could give them. The greatest gift we can give them is to introduce them to someone who loves a broken world so much that he can take a broken person and make them new. And if there's anything that we can do for our kids and our grandkids and even ourselves is to learn to stop judging and hating and throwing up things on our Facebook and throwing up things on our Instagrams and throwing out things in the world that really aren't changing anything. And maybe it's time for us to choose to love the world that we live in, not to accept it, not to act like everything's okay, not to, not to, to pander or, or you know, dilute the gospel or anything like that, but just to love the world we're in, to not complain about it all the time, but to choose to love it where it is and to try our best to move individuals, to move our friends, 
to move our loved ones into a place that they understand that even though this world is broken, we have hope in a God who could take our broken life and make it new and that he can teach us to love broken people and to love a broken world. That to me is the greatest gift that we can give our kids. So I don't know where you are in this. I don't know if this was for you. I really, it's between you and Jesus. But I know that if we wanna see change in our city, in our county, in our state, in our country, in our world, it doesn't start with sharing everything you see. And it doesn't start with an I told you so spirit. It starts with just what Jesus says. Love one another. That's how they're gonna know love one another. In your living room, wherever you're watching, can you just bow your head with me really quick? Father, our world is messed up. Not as messed up as maybe we just read, but God is broken. Maybe more broken right now than it's been in a long time. And God, it is not our duty as Christians, at least what I can see in my scriptures, it is not our duty as Christians to yell and scream the judgments. But Father, it's our duty to meet it with love and care. And so Father, today I pray that God, that you would speak into our hearts God, this idea that we need to love you unconditionally and then we need to let that love transfer into the love for other people. And that, Father, that we would challenge ourselves to put certain things to the side, to let certain judgments fall away from us and to look at our world with a new perspective and to say, even though I might not agree, even though I might totally go the other way or think the other way, that I will stop looking at policies, I will stop looking at, at, at the ways that you view the world, and I will look at your heart, and I will say that I love you. And then I want you to know a Savior. And even though I might not be able to fix the whole world, Father, I might be able to introduce someone to a Savior who can come in and fix their world. That's our prayer today. In your name, amen. If you need prayer or dedicated your life to Christ, please reach out to us on our social media, on Facebook and Instagram at NBCC Norco, or email us at hello at NBCC.com. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe to this podcast.